Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Hello and welcome to this month's podcast of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau and this month we wanted to bring up a fairly lively topic sure to generate a lot of discussion and no it's not college football although always that's good to talk about. Today we're talking about predation management for quail and with us to help do that as always Dr. Dale Rollins. Hello Dale. Hey Gary, it's great, great to be with you again. What a topic and a topic that I'm sure you discuss with at length with individuals that are interested in quail. I've worked all my career in various aspects of wildlife, a good bit of that with the sheep and goat industry. And you talk about predation and predators in sheep and goat circles. Yes. And you have anything good to say about predator, you're going to be nailed to the wall. <laughs> I can remember back in 1991 when I first proposed a predator appreciation day. Oh my gosh. And I got these pallid stares from all the county agents involved. Rollins has flipped his cotton picking lid. But until I had one of them read uh, the uh, definition of appreciation, to judge with heightened awareness, to be cautiously or sensitively aware of. So I've spent most of my career appreciating various things, good, bad, and ugly. And uh, in the quail circles, when people begin to see low quail numbers, they often want to vent the blame on something or right. somebody. Depending on where you're at, that may be fire ants. That may be coyotes, that may be the hawks, whatever. So we're going to talk a little bit about, about predation management, and I want to caution you. Predation management does not always mean predator control. Good point. It's talking about keeping the management of predation at a manageable level. They're different. They're, they're different. The quail itself, that's a small bird with a lot of things after it, including predators. Exactly, and, and as our listeners, are, as we move into this podcast, I want our listeners to morph themselves down to the size of a quail. You're no longer six feet tall, weighing 180 pounds. You're six inches tall and you weigh six ounces. So honey, I shrunk the kids. Get down to that and then ask yourself this question. How many bobcats do you whoop? None. None. How many Cooper's hawks do you give a salute to? One, if you get my drift, because he's gonna nail you after that. So. I often tell the kids at the Bob Hopper Brigade and students and quail masters, as we're sitting with this cadaver in front of us and we're learning about adaptations and anatomy and so forth, that every living, single, breathing moment of a quail's life is dictated by the threat of predation. Again, that doesn't say we go out and nuke the predators, but we have to be cognizant that predation is something as a force that has shaped our anatomy, it's shaped our behavior, and we have to be cognizant of who our enemies are. It's an arms race between the predators and the prey. And as landowners, I guess you can manage that threat, right? We can do several things. Uh, we're here in Austin today taping these webisodes, and I often market myself as the second DR from Hollis, Oklahoma. Those in Austin probably know who the first one was. That was Daryl Royal, legendary football coach. I played football for Hollis High School. Uh, many years after Coach Royal, but there was a little placard inside our locker room that I often thought reflected his sentiments. I don't mm -hmm. know that he was the author, but it, it said this, if your team scores, you may win. If the other team scores, you may lose. If the other team never scores, you will never lose. Defense wins ball games. Defense. And so I want our managers or landowners to be thinking about 
how can we make defense from a quail standpoint more an integral part of our land management? All right, let's talk about, Dale, uh, some of the actual threats themselves, uh, threats in the tall grass and threats from above. There are many, but I'm sure at the research ranch near Roby, uh, you've determined some are more culpable than others. That's right, but, but you just said, Gary, and it's a long list. Uh, how long do we have on this podcast? Because we could talk uh, in length and in detail about the various things that will eat quail eggs, quail chicks, or quail. And so it's a triple whammy on quail. And I often uh, tell landowners they got to be concerned about death from above in the form of hawks, death in the tall grass and for, in the form of various measles carnivores, snakes. Mm -hmm. We had seven of our radio mark quail killed and consumed last year, 2018, by rattlesnakes. Really? So again, lots of different threats out there if you're a quail. I uh, penned a cadence at the Bob White Brigade a number of years ago that kind of puts it in perspective. A quail's life is full of tests. Many critters break up their nests. Possums, skunks, and raccoons too. It's enough to make a Bob White blue. So again, the whole threat of predation is something we've got to be cognizant about and we've got to try to address. And a lot of people will say, you know, it's, you know what's the major right. source of mortality? And predation is typically the major source. Of our radial mark quail out in uh, the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch, typically we might have 60 to 70 percent of them die during the year. And the proximate cause of mortality would be, would be fang, tooth, or claw some type of natural death. Now, I like to quote Will Rogers, who said, for a Central American dictator, he died a natural death. He was shot in the back. So again, you got to take that <laughs> into perspective. But a natural death for a quail may come at the, at the talons of a right. cooper's hawk or uh, the, the fangs of a bobcat. Same with blue quail. Blue quail are facing some of the same threats. They face the same threats, but Val Lehman, who was a biologist for the King Ranch, he wrote a book called Bob Whites in the Real Grandy Plains of Texas. Uh, you can still find it on eBay occasionally. It's a great read. He said that in his chapter on blue quail, he said, blue quail are somewhat more intelligent than Bob Whites. How so? And I concur. Well, first of all, they live in, in rougher country. Okay. In fact, as we talk about sheep and goats, you got your Spanish goats, you got your Angora goats, as you know. Angora goats are sometimes looking for a place to die. Spanish goats can get fat off the, the pavement right here. So a little bit, that's relative to what we're at with Bob Whites and blue quail. Things that you're doing at the Quail Research Ranch to determine who done it. Great technology and great methodology, I guess, to help you make some of those determinations. When we monitor our quail, uh, again, we've got radio transmitters on them. Those radio transmitters are about the size of a nickel. They sit right here on the breast of the quail, like where the quail's crop is, where it's used to carrying a little bit of extra weight. And I tell people that uh, the transmitters only play two songs. It's a poor country and western station. It only plays two songs, I'm alive or I'm dead. The I'm alive signal is about 40 beats per minute. So what we're listening for is beep, beep, beep. If that collar lies motionless for about 14 hours, there's a little mercury switch that kicks over what we call a mortality signal. And the mortality signal doubles the pulse rate. Beep, beep, beep. When our technicians hear that, they say that something's happened to that bird or it slipped its collar, but, but typically something's, it's, it's dead. So they begin to go and they triangulate in and home in on that bird until they, they say, okay, we found the, the scene. Then we go into what I call CSI mode, crime scene investigation. Now, that may not mean much to some of you. You gotta think about who was the detective of your time. Was it Sherlock Holmes for some of you really old folks? 
For my generation, it was Quincy, the Quincy. medical examiner. Uh, today, it might be uh, CSI, mm -hmm. some, some of those deals. But all of them were trying to look at the evidence at this kill scene and make a informed decision about who done it. Uh, it's never a perfect science. I hope you can appreciate that. But we can look at the feather evidence and get an indication of whether or not it was done by a mammal, whether or not it was done by a raptor, a hawk, or whether or not it was done by a reptile. And normally when it's a reptile, they've swallowed the whole bird, so we actually find the, the bird and the transmitter in the, uh, in the snake, for example. Uh, when we come up on a mammal scene, and mammals account for about two-thirds of our mortality, and especially during the summer months, okay. during the nesting season. And what we're looking for there, again, is what kind of modus operandi do these predators have? And typically there'll be just a pile of feathers. The, the, the feathers, you'll see saliva, where they've matted the feathers from the saliva as they chewed it. The transmitter itself may have some teeth marks in it. So we're looking for all those little fine clues, just like a forensic pathologist would say, and be able to deduce whether or not we think this was done by a bobcat, whether it was done by a coyote. For example, if we find a gizzard amongst a pile of feathers, we think that was a feline, a bobcat or a wild house cat. For whatever reason, and I can't tell you why, bobcats or wild house cats typically do not eat the gizzards. I guess I'm a little like that. I don't like gizzards either. <laughs> so that's one of the clues. Uh, again, there are other clues, and we also do this with nest. In fact, we've got a really good, we've got a webisode on quail CSI that will help you uh, introduce the topic, flesh out the topic, so you can read more, or see more about that. But then on the uh, quail nest, we talked earlier about using dummy nest, artificial nest, right. simulated nest. We can go out and we can look at the eggshell evidence. In fact, I had one of my best graduate students was uh, Fidel Hernandez. In the quail world, you know Dr. Hernandez from the Cesar Clayburgh Institute. He was one of my early graduate students, and his project was determining the modus operandi of various quail nest predators. And we had game cameras. This was right when game cameras yes. first came out. And Fidel would set the, the camera up on this artificial nest. When a critter came in to get the eggs, we got a picture of it. Fidel would come out the next morning and, and describe the modus operandi. How large were the eggshells? Were they scattered? How were they placed relative to the nest bowl? All that type of background information that allows us to make more informed decisions now about who done it. And so one, uh, really two good things we learned about uh, from Fidel's study, we used chicken eggs, which we typically use in our dummy nest, and that was to maybe uh, simulate a turkey nest. Mm -hmm. And then we also used quail eggs. Well, when we used quail eggs, we only found physical evidence, eggshell evidence, about 3% of the time. Where'd they go? They eat the whole thing. They eat the whole egg. Just like, and we've got video of a raccoon, you know, he's just popping those things down, it looks like peanut M&Ms. From if we use chicken eggs, we found physical evidence about eggshell evidence about ninety percent of the time. So from our standpoint, as far as trying to be a student of this phenomenon, uh, using the chicken eggs is a better way to go. Snakes consume the whole eggs. One of the most interesting things that we learned when you think of feral hogs, mm -hmm. and boy, you talk about something that potentially a devastating nest predator because of their sense of olfaction. They've got an incredible sense of smell. Uh, You'd think you'd see rooting evidence and so forth. Feral hogs are capable 
of being very dainty eaters, eating those eggs and leaving absolutely no physical really? evidence. We've learned all that from, again, the use of game cameras and those, that type of technology. Well, a shout out to some of your research team there at the <coughs> Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch on your social media post. Oftentimes you will put a photo out there and ask those that are looking at it, tell us, what do you think? Right. What are the clues that you see? And I think you can learn a lot from those social posts. Well, you really can. And we've had so many mortalities over the last six months that I have to tell my technicians, we don't want to make a Facebook post out of every quail that's killed or everybody will be really in a bad, bad mood. So, but about every, uh, every month or so I'll post one or if we have something that's, that's intriguing like we think this killed it and it has some definitive uh, physical evidence, we'll include those. I guess the bobwhite in particular, uh, and maybe blue quail as well, uh, they have an ability, I guess, to try to mitigate against some of those threats by just how many nests they produce, how many eggs they produce. They're, it's a game of numbers, right? That's the exactly right. The quail are trying to beat that. There are basically two strategies in the animal world of survival. One is called R selection, one is called K selection. K selection means it's carrying capacity, and that's basically food limited. You think of white-tailed deer, they're a K survival species. Lower reproduction, greater maternal investment in that. Whereas you talk about a critter like quail, R stands for biotic potential. Insects are selected species. They're basically fish. They're flooding the market out there and hoping some of them survive kind of thing. And so that's the strategy of the quail. As managers, again, we've got to try to make the best because that that quail, again, it's, it's a numbers game, and we're hoping to uh, adjust the numbers where it favors us in greater quail abundance than favoring the enemies of the quail. I'm going to use the word control. We talked about that earlier. At the research ranch, you have some specific uh, management strategies regarding predator control. Tell us about that and why you have those specific strategies. Well, I want to proceed my answer, Gary, with the Hippocratic Oath. And the Hippocratic Oath, which medical professionals uh, subscribe to, is first, do no harm. And that has so many implications for us on the back 40, whether we're talking about brush management or in this perspective, uh, predator management. Yes. And I also want to cite my preacher, Preacher Paul, who I talk about all the time here in San Angelo. I want to invite you all, if you're ever in town, to give me a holler and come out and listen to Preacher Paul. He'll often precede his sermon with one of two comments. First one is, I want you all to know I'm not mad at any of you. <laughs> If he says that, he's prefacing the congregation for the fact that there can be a little fire and brimstone today. Heed the message, don't shoot the messenger. And his second precautionary profession, as I call it, is you're free to choose your actions, but you're not free to choose the consequences. And we think of that when we're thinking about our teenage daughter and teenage son, but it has implications for the land managers on the back 42. And so I always like to have those in mind when we're talking about any management practice, and especially as we're talking about predation. When we think about Hippocratic management, there are some things that we do that we don't think about. Mm -hmm. And we benignly are on the surface, we think, well, that's probably beneficial to quail. Now again, I want you to know I ain't mad at any of you, but let me ask you, as I discuss this list of items, I want you to think, did that help quail more or the enemies of quail? And the first one is farm ponds. Farm ponds. If you've flown above the state of Texas early morning, late evening, it looks like the prairie pothole region of, of uh, North Dakota. There's farm ponds everywhere out there. Ad libitum, maybe ad nauseum. And when you think about that, you say, well, quail probably like those farm ponds too. They, you know, we'll talk about quail and water some of the time, but they'll use water if okay. it's available. Okay. 
But think about what the availability of farm ponds has done. Again, over the last 40 years, be shooting up like, like a rocket. And then think about critters like feral hogs and think about raccoons. And did those farm ponds impact them more positively than they did quail? If they did, then again, you've got to think about, did we affect the quail's abundance or the, our enemy's abundance? Farm ponds is a touchy subject. I bet. Everybody likes them. Mm -hmm. But if you think about them, they're probably not all that quail friendly. Another example, and don't shoot me now, Gary. Drought feed programs for livestock owners. Interesting. What happens if we go into a drought like we did in 2011? Well, there's uh, some farm subsidies. There's some subsidized feed programs that allow uh, a rancher to get this feed at lower cost or whatever. Right. What does that allow him to do with the stocking rate? Maintain it. What does the natural source of forage tell us? Cut back. But we've been able to keep our herds artificially inflated. That drives our forage further and further down. That's not a good situation for quail. I'm not necessarily being critical of these. I'm just saying you got to think about the consequences. You're free to choose your actions, not free to choose consequences. Supplemental feeding a deer. Oh. What do you think that's done over the last 30 years? Oh, it's gone Shot great. up like a rocket. Okay. What do you think uh, are some species that capitalize from that? Raccoons love Raccoons. Those. Anybody that's got a game camera on a deer feeder is in for a shock. Sometimes you'll hear somebody talk about a raccoon-proof deer feeder. The way I define a raccoon-proof deer feeder is one that's never had a game camera on it. Because if you begin to put game cameras on, I've seen pictures of us up to 23 raccoons at a deer feeder. And then we begin to say, and feral hogs are another example of that. Both of them are coming to those corn feeders. There is a phenomenon in the animal science world that we call flushing. If we've got ewe uh, lambs or we've got uh, heifers that we're wanting to increase the ovulation rate of, we feed them in a high energy supplement and that increases the ovulation rate. So what are we doing to raccoons and feral hogs? Unbeknowingly, we're increasing the uh, reproduction and probably survival rate of some of those critters. What does that mean from a quail standpoint? More enemies out there right. looking for our nest kind of thing. Yes. CRP. CRP. Conservation Reserve Program. Very popular A little over four million acres, most of it in mm -hmm. the rolling plains and the high plains of Texas. Mm -hmm. What do you think that's done for quail? You think should be good because yeah, perennial grasslands. Exactly. And for the first two to three years, it had a lot of weeds in it. It was great. And then after the grasses took over, not as good. Still offers some nesting potential, but large areas out in the middle probably aren't. But then again, uh, so again, it's little things that we just don't think about. And then this brings me to my last one, which we've done some work at the research ranch, and that's killing coyotes, coyotes. controlling coyotes. You want to find a pariah and say, you know, how many deer hunting shows on TV, some of them are just pretty bad. Yes. Uh, but everybody wants to say, well, we, we're you know, calling up coyotes and we're helping our quail population, deer population, maybe. Our research at the research ranch suggests that coyotes are way down the list. We've done two studies where we looked at uh, two master's theses at Texas Tech, one during La Nina and one during El Nino. And that's the beauty of the research ranch is long-term data mm -hmm. sets because, again, we want to know what they did during the hardest times and what the best times. During the hardest times, they lived on prickly pear mesquite beans, coyotes did. No quail were consumed in that study. Now, you might argue, well, you didn't have very many quail. You'd be correct. So we repeated that in 2016 when we had lots of quail. Okay. 
I believe it was two quail, less than 1% of the scats, the coyote scats contain quail or quail eggs. So that tells us that again, coyotes are just not a big factor in the scheme of things, at least in our situation. I'd be quick to point out one of the dangers of statistics and correlations is you don't, you don't extrapolate beyond the range of your data. So I'm gonna say for our area in Fisher County, Coyotes are not an issue. Coyotes, in fact, we leave them alone. They're opportunistic. They're going elsewhere for easier food, easier prey. I mean, in 2016, like 87% of their diet was cotton rats. There you go. Now that, there's a lesson there. If you've got an abundance of cotton rats, that serves as a buffer prey species. It's a lot easier for a coyote to catch a cotton rat than it is to catch a quail. So having the availability of buffer species, that's a great management thing. Another form of buffer species are fruits, mast as we call it. Things like wild plums, things like prickly pear tunas, mesquite beans. The greater the vegetative diversity, the brush diversity, the greater diversity of mast, those can serve as buffer species, again, to help protect your quail from predation by coyotes. So can predator management include the taking of certain species that you know are more responsible for possible quail impacts? Is that a landowner strategy that could be pursued? It certainly can for some species. For the various mammalian, uh, predators, what we call the mesocarnivores, the mid-sized carnivores, things from skunks up to coyotes, something like that. Well, certainly as a landowner or as a manager, you have the legal authority to do that. You need to check with your local game, game warden to make sure, but if you're not keeping the furs of that critter, odds are you can do about what you want to with them with traps, snares, poisons in some cases if you're certified to do that. But there are, other rap there are other predators that are off limits, and those being the various birds of prey, raptors, Roadrunners, those are protected by state and federal laws. So they're hands off. We have no offensive strategies to be able to apply to them. We gotta work strictly in a defensive mode if we're talking about those. You mentioned roadrunners. Um, people think of roadrunners perhaps predating on quail. Are they someone, someone, are they a species that you have pointed to as maybe being impactful? I'm going to keep you in suspense because we're going to talk about that in a subsequent podcast. So I'm not going to share my thoughts with you right now. Very because, good. Because it's a fairly, you've got to flesh out the context of that. <laughs> Gary, you've been involved with Farm Bureau and, and you're aware of uh, integrated pest management. Yes, IPM. You know, IPM, if we're talking to alfalfa producers or cotton producers, uh, much of our effort over the last 20 years has dealt with integrated pest management. And there are various components of that. For, for one, we have to be able to identify the pest. And we have to recognize that some insects are beneficials. We don't want to kill our lady beetles because they're a beneficial predator in, in that situation mm -hmm. for the cotton community. Mm -hmm. But we have others like aphids or weevils, and so we, we got to know what we're doing. That analogy is also useful for predation management as well. And then scouting, being able to say, are our numbers high at this time of the year? So you see the little pheromone traps out in the cotton fields so they can monitor those to see what the bow weevils and so forth are doing. We can do the same thing in the quail world with our game cameras. And that's what we do at the research ranch. We have camera stations all across the ranch to where over the years we can say, is our coyote population going up? Is our bobcat population going up? What are our, our relative uh, population levels there? And then that allows us to talk about economic thresholds or action levels. In okay. other words, again, if I'm raising cotton, if I've got X number of boll weevils, I know that I better be spraying for my boll weevils or it's going to have a detrimental impact on my cotton. So in a quail world, we don't, we're not quite to that level yet, but uh, 
if we've got low levels of coyotes, for example, I surely wouldn't worry about them. If I've got high levels, I personally, I still wouldn't worry about them, but that, that would be some type of a trigger mechanism. Uh, let me give you the analogy of in deer. If I'm flying a helicopter count in October mm -hmm. and I see more coyotes than I do deer fawns, and if I'm into deer, that's a trigger. That's an economic threshold that says I need to work on the coyotes to increase fawn survival. We're not quite there with quail management, but a similar kind of a philosophy. And then again, the thought of an integrated approach. We don't start out with our lethal control. We start out with some other things. Good habitat. Again, nesting cover across the landscape, brush a quail house, every softball throw apart, some of those kind of things. And again, that goes back to Coach Royal's philosophy that defense wins ball games. So we always want our non-lethal approaches to be first. And then if we have to follow up, if we need to follow up with lethal control, we can do that. I would just caution you because I've worked with the predator control uh, arena in Texas for a long time. It's a highly politicized environment. You always want to be a good steward. You want to follow a code of ethics. Yes. If, you, if you're going to control coyotes or bobcats, that's one thing. Don't hang them up on the fence. You know, you got to think, you know, you and I a long time ago did that video, deer hunting, focus on ethics. That's right. We could probably do another one on coyote control, focus on ethics. Maybe that'll be a topic for another day. It's a predator appreciation. It is an appropriate use of the word because it is lending itself to higher and more effect effective management. Right? That's right. And, and again, be cautiously or sensitively aware of. I need to appreciate that these critters can be a threat to my quail, but I also need to appreciate what the impact they've had on quail over thousands of years of being. The quail that I love to hunt is a function of predation. The covey, the covey rise, those are all anti-predator defenses. And the, as a hunter, I love that. So predators have shaped those quail that we have and they've given us the product that we aspire to have. So predation is not always bad. It, it's just a force that we, we want to learn more about. Judge with heightened awareness, be cautiously or sensitively aware of. Dr. Dale, what are some of the resources out there? We've had a great discussion regarding predation management, uh, predation management, where are some of the places where people can go to learn more and to take that next step as they consider their options? There's a publication called uh, Predator Control and Wildlife Management that I wrote 15 years or so ago. It, it, it does a good job. It shows some of the quail CSI kinds of photos. Uh, again, we have webisodes. Uh, one of them is called Quail CSI, and the other one is uh, How to Use Dummy Nest. And so both of those are very useful tools for aspiring students of quail. Well, thank you, Dr. Dale. We hope you've enjoyed this month's podcast of Dr. Dale on quail. Great topic, uh, more to learn, more always to find out. And the great research that's being done at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch is helping us do that. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau thanking you. Let us know how we're doing. We appreciate the good folks at the Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Service for their support and efforts. We hope you join us next time with Dr. Dale on quail. See you then. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.